You're listening to a ComicsXF podcast. WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the ComicsXF interview podcast where two best friends talk about comics with the people who make them. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Laswitz. And this week's guest is about to launch a new Boom Studio series, Zawa and the Belly of the Beast, Michael Dialinas. Welcome. Oh, hi, guys. Nice to be here. <laughs> what are some of the first comics you remember reading? Oh, going straight into a question. Oh, one minute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, as a 80s kid, I grew up on Turtles. So a lot of Turtles and a lot of Ghostbuster comics when I was uh, younger. So, uh, yeah, so basically when the first movie, Turtle movie came out in 1990, I was six. So that's when comics started becoming a big, big part of my life. You know, reading all the Archie Turtles that were available in the UK. So this weekend, it's funny you mentioned the Ghostbusters comics. This weekend, uh, Matt and I were at a uh, comic show in our home state of New Jersey. And we were talking with our friend Rob who's been on the podcast a bunch of times. And he mentioned he was trying to track down this, this Slimer miniseries because the artist on it was like this legendary... Matt, please feel free to jump in here with details I'm forgetting or just screwing up. Like advertising artist in like the 1970s. And he just sort of ended up slumming it on this six-issue Slimer mini. That is a, it's apparently gorgeous. <laughs> Yeah, he did the art for all of these pinball machines, like the Incredible Hulk pinball machine and all these other like really classic pinball machines. And when he got into comics in the 90s, Marvel and DC, Marvel was hiring, you know, it was the image boom and DC was getting, you know, it was still very much in its own house style and or bringing over is like Byrne and Simonson who'd been legends over at Marvel, so to Now Comics and, and did uh, three or four issues of Slimer. Was was that the Slimer show, the Slimer minis, uh, the, Slimer, the Slimer comic where there was an older guy with a mustache that was tagging along with him? I believe so, yes. Okay. Yeah, those I remember those ones. I thought there were more. He said six issues? Well, he didn't do the whole series. He did did one arc, apparently. Okay. okay. The print so. on all of those now books were low to begin with, and by that, even lower. So they are they're dollar bin finds, but they're not you find everywhere like some dollar bin books. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Sli- Slimer exclamation point! Right. I think that's it. Sounds right. Yeah. Who is this? I've read most of these issues when I was a kid. I remember the covers. Yeah, I, I got a... David Swartz? Dave Swartz? Yeah. Or George Pacheco? That's the one. I okay. Think. It was J- Jorge, it was Jorge a- Pacheco. Or, yes, I believe that that was the one. Or at least I think it had... I remember the G, G sound, J sound at the beginning. Or Gary Fields. There's a few artists here. It might have been reason. Gary... I think I just the G, so it might be in Gary Field. That 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 sound I just remembered having a G sound when Rob was talking about it. Okay, but yeah, it's it's a funny little world of licensed comics. Uh, Look at that, yeah. <laughs> available online for yeah, six dollars. That that also is a big monster in the background that looks pinball machiney. Yeah, yeah. Okay. They call it a dinosaur cover, but that's pretty much a Godzilla cover. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's good stuff. Yeah. So I grew up on this stuff. <laughs> right on, right on. You're here to talk about your new Boom Studio series, Zawa and the Belly of the Beast, uh, in stores November 8th, the Wednesday this episode drops. Matt, take us oh, to God. the mountaintop. <laughs> Trapped at her mountain by pollution spewing factories, the guardian spirit Zawa only has real waste to eat leading her to a bitter existence of paranoia and destruction. But when two siblings from a nearby village help her escape, they'll quickly learn that the way to Kawa's heart is through a well-nourished stomach. What is the origin of this project? Generally, this this book was kind of a circumstantial book. Like, uh, we're going to take a a break from wind for a year. 
And mm. my editor was bugging me and just saying, hey, man, you know, maybe it's time to, you know, write your own book now. Because I've always wanted to get back into that because um, before working in the US market, I used to do my own stuff, my own uh, stories here in Greece. So I've been like Jones in trying to like, at some point, get a pitch together and prep, um, prep a little project just for myself. So then suddenly I was like forced into like, hey, now we're going to have a year off. Here's your chance. Do the pitch and we'll see how it goes. So he kind of like pushed me into it. So while I was like finish up finishing up the third book of wind, I had like a hundred like a, a decade worth of ideas just like flowing in my head, like thinking, now's the time to do it. What am I gonna do? Can I do this? How long is it gonna be? How big of a comic is it gonna be? I've never written anything over 30 pages. So suddenly to pitch a mini series was kind of daunting. I didn't know, you know, how to how to solve this. So it was like at least 10, 10 different ideas. And the one that bubbled up to the, the surface was something to do with food and macabre. So that's kind of where we, I can go into a long story. We can come back and forth with this, but it basically was just a, a need to draw delicious foods, a fun fantasy world, some weird steam, uh, not steampunk, some weird, um, kind of want to say cyberpunky, but it's not. Like I'm, I'm bringing in cyberpunk elements from like Akira and Otomo projects, but I'm filtering it through a Miyazaki eye. So it's, it's getting this weird dystopian fantasy world, but contemporary mix. So I just wanted all these different elements for me to draw. And you know, tell a fun story about some kids who meet a, a weird creature. That's how the base the base started. And at, at what point did you realize you you wanted to do every damn bit of this comic down to the letter? You know, was there any point where you were like, you know, maybe I should bring in somebody to help me out with X or anything like that? Um. Yeah, that was a <laughs> that was a decision and a half. Um. At some point, where I was like. I, I prefer to color and draw my own work. And I always do the sound effects on every book that I do. So I'm, I was halfway doing the lettering as it was. So at some point when we were putting down the budgets and, you know, how, you know, what, what everything costs. And if I wanted a letter, it would be this uh, X amount of money for the book. I was like, no, 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 I'll, I'll just, <laughs> I'll take that, <laughs> that portion of the, of the budget also, because um, I don't write scripts. I write layouts. I, I draw the, the comic and I put in the the dialogue, dialogue after. So I basically do the Marvel method, but with myself. So it kind of came like an easier way for me to write the book while I was lettering it. And I didn't want to get into the whole, I'm going to write out panel, panel each um balloon and then give it to someone else because I wasn't 100% sure what I was writing and you know I'm a visual person so I wanted to see how the the each balloon fits and you know what kind of space I had like if I if I drew the, the specific panel and the space was kind of smaller than I wanted I just wanted to figure out you know what was the best way I could fit x amount of words into it like it was more of a I'm figuring this out as I go so the lettering and the scripting and the dialoguing, it was like one big part. And I didn't want to split it up because it was easier for me to manage that way. And it's more fun because if you like, you've read the first issue. So you've seen the kind of lettering that I was, I, I did in the book mm -hmm. and lettering is a big part of some of the characters. Absolutely. Uh, now, was it always planned for, for Boom because you were already doing Wind there or was this something that you'd shopped around to a couple of publishers? No, it's, all, it's always been uh, with Boom because it was um, I've been working with them for 10 years with uh, The Woods prior and sure. then uh, Lucy Dreaming and then Wind. So I have a 10-year relationship with the company and with my editor who he's been editing my work since 2013. Mm -hmm. So I just felt it just felt more 
comfortable and it was more easier to figure things out because I I know these people very well. And especially when we're trying to figure out, you know, when we're going to start Wind 4 again, it was, you know, easier to schedule with the same people. So it's like, I speak with the same person about Wind and, and uh, Zawa at the same time. Now, you mentioned, you know, want, food is a priority in this comic, obviously. Mm-hmm. You know, are you yourself a foodie? You know, do you cook regularly? I I do want to... I will lie if I say I do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I used to, but the time does not help me. Like, right now I have uh, breadsticks and a chocolate bar on my desk. That's going to be my sustenance for the next few hours while I'm working. Um my girlfriend does most of the cooking in the house and she keeps telling me like maybe you should cook sometimes. I was like, but you make everything so nice. <laughs> so <laughs> I do like your, you know, she's pescatarian, so she have we have a lot of vegan options and uh I'm lactose intolerant, so basically we eat we eat the same things. I just occasionally get a little bit of meat on the side. So um yeah, like most of the food options are like in the food, the foods in the book are basically foods from my childhood and whatever my uh, lovely girlfriend does in the house. Like like yesterday, we had um, like pumpkin, um, sliced pumpkin in the oven and uh, honey roasted baked um, potatoes. Nice. Mm. <laughs> yeah, no, my, my wife's the same way. She, she's she's worked in she's. A- a pastry chef she's worked in kitchens oh. her entire you know, and she was now she works on the business end of food but she was in kitchens for years and but she's always like but you know you should you should cook you should. it's like honey i'll do the dishes i will slice and prepare things so they're ready when you get home but you know what happens when i try to cook i find ways to burn water i just I, i'm not no. my skill set no, no. <laughs> I'm good. I'm not that bad. <laughs> I I can do my. I can I can cook. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm. I'm that that it's hyperbolic. I'm not bad in front of a grill, but you know, you you put me. You know, these some of these elaborate recipes. It's like it 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 doesn't end well. If I will say, I have found a way to make things both burnt and underdone at the same time. You know, it's it's burnt on the outside, but the inside not quite there. Yeah, yeah. You went. You went too fast. Your your heat was too high. Yeah. Yes, that's exactly that's exactly what it's like. No, no, no. Medium heat, medium heat. That that's how it works. Don't don't try the high heat. It's it's not going to do well. It's, it's like, you know you know you know that with a grill, just you put it on. You got to let it go. You can't just assume. It's like yes, I know that. <laughs> no, I do I, prefer my egg dishes, like especially for breakfast stuff. But like I, I do like a good omelet and. Uh, I've only recently realized how to make good um, uh, fried eggs without burning the edges. <laughs> it's something I never thought about. Put the cap on the pan. Like uh, I, there's this brunch place I go to for years, and at some point I said, "How how come your eggs are so good? Hey, you just lower the heat and you put the, the top on the pan, so it just keeps all the heat inside." And it's not boiling. It's not getting fried on the on the oil. It's just getting ho- wholly, you know, cooked in the atmosphere of the of the pan is, um, you know, the lid. I was like, I didn't. I never realized that. I'm nearly forty, and I'm just realizing it's now. I just learned something new. <laughs> oh man, uh, I, I do, Matt. I really do like the idea, though, of of you know, kind of am- amber directing you in the kitchen and and you being the guy if this were a cooking reality show sort of in the background frantically running and getting things and set and yelling yes chef <laughs> that that is often what it, it what it's like uh, until the point where it's like okay get out of the kitchen you're getting in my way but <laughs> the beginning of the process it's like okay gather this cut this okay you can go yes chef I, <laughs> I see we i see we've all seen the bear <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, first first couple episodes. Bear or uh, oh. the the menu. If you haven't seen the Ray Fine's mm-hmm. uh the menu. That was a weird movie. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm still not 100% sure if I liked it or not. 
it was weird. Like it went off into a weird direction that I heard a lot of people saying that they did not like it, and I'm kind of like stuck in the middle of you know. I don't know what my I, feelings are. <laughs> I'm on the other end. I I enjoyed it. I I like it when a movie does not go where I'm anticipating. But I I also go to the, I spend a lot of time in the movies, so I'm harder to surprise nowadays. Hmm. But it was um it was very interesting because everyone was just saying like I had friends that went to the movies and they 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 left in the first half an hour. It's like wow, I've only left a one movie. So for it to be that bad, but it wasn't that bad. Like I watched it at home, and um, I just have very mixed feelings. Like it's not bad or not good or bad. It's just I don't know what to feel. But it was uh, not what I expected when starting the movie. So in this book, uh, vending machines are, are are kind of presented as a tool of the enemy. What is the what is the nastiest thing you ever got out of a vending machine? In Greece, we don't have vending machines. Really? So, <laughs> yes. Oh. Yeah, I've I rarely had contact with vending machines. It's more of a um, the vending machines in the book are more of a dis, uh, the destruction of the brick and mortar stores, like the mom and sure. pop stores. Yeah. It's just an automated machine that gives you food that's not been prepared recently. So that it's more of a tool. It's that, that kind of a tool in the story. Like here, sure. we don't have that. Everything you get, you get from a kiosk or you get from a from um, you know someone that's actually making it up. It, right, that right. Sorry, <laughs> I lost my words. Uh, making something that moment. We don't really have uh, that kind of automation here. Not even for like like soda cans. No, you just open the fridge, you get the can, and you go to pay at the front. Ooh. Okay. There's no automated one. There's no you know slot machine <laughs> to get one. Fascinating. So it's more of a you know like I especially with the lockdown in the last few years. Yeah. Uh, I I did go through a lot of YouTube videos, and I have a fascination with Japan, like I do want to visit Japan at some point. And with watching all these videos, I, I got to the video which had a, a one hour review of vending machines in the vending machine park. And it, it just fascinated me. I was just watching this one hour video with all these different things like soups and ramen and everything coming from these vending machines. So that's where I got the, maybe, you know, this is a cool way to, you know, use this in the story that, um, and it's also a cool visual, like just stopping, like, sorry, we're, we're going in a weird direction here. Like the story has a, a small, small, it's a big city, but everyone, it's kind of like Amazon. Everyone works for the factory mm. and no one has their individuality anymore. Like there's no small stores. If you want eat you eat from this from these um, products that are provided by the factory so you basically work for the factory and you pay the factory to live so it's like a it's an it's, it's a snake it's a snake eating its own tail oh, yeah. like you're just living in a loop you pay and you get paid from the same thing so that's where i kind of use the vending machine and it's a fun, it's a fun visual um and i got to get a <clears throat> i got a nice story out of it with the with the bakery and the the kids like it used to be a bakery but now it's a basically a vending machine store and the bakery the bakery part of the <clears throat> of the book is actually just um something that connects the kids to their father that used to run it mm -hmm. i was watching i was watching the most recent episode of loki and no story spoilers but there's there's a a load-bearing vending machine that is is for hot liquids so there's like a big sign on it that advertises coffee hot cocoa but then it has a button for soup and that was what bothered me because i'm like you can't just say soup what kind of soup is it and how is it Chocolate coming soup. out is it coming out of the same saying. nozzle <laughs> yeah. you rolls the dice you takes your chances i guess so like maybe I could, today yeah, it. I could see tomato soup right but like you can't do a chicken noodle no, on no, that it's thing. Not. 
No, no, it's it's chocolate soup. It's just an old way of saying hot chocolate. They call it chocolate soup. Okay, huh. that could be it. So it's it's not another. It's not different soups. It's it's still hot chocolate, but it's just a different way of calling the hot chocolate to call it chocolate soup. Interesting. Okay, because it was thick. Yeah, I feel more comfortable with that. <laughs> <laughs> Much better than the idea of hitting the button and suddenly there's pea soup coming out of the same nozzle that just had chocolate. Yeah. Yeah. No. But also, you had all the key lime pie also in the background, which I was, that was amazing little boxes of little key lime pies. That, that, that was, a, that, that is some beautiful looking key lime pie on that show. But mm -hmm. looks, looks unnatural, but, but still tempting. I, w I wish we had that kind of stuff here. Just like all of, all of our of... all of our desserts are mainly syrup, syrupy based. Okay. So we don't really have pies and stuff. So if you want, if you go into like a <clears throat> like a chocolate store or a bakery that sells mainly desserts, all you'll get is chocolate stuff, and then you get your like Turkish, uh, Middle Eastern syrup. Be nut based, honey based stuff. It was all pastries, like just dipped in syrup. There's one, oh, I, and I can never remember what, uh, Fugatsa, this flaky, that's the, the, you know, I was talking about it before. The company my wife works for now, she's, she's a buyer, mm -hmm. but the, she's a buyer for a food distributor. The food distributor is owned by first generation. Greek emigres to the mm -hmm. States. Like the sons were born in the States, but the parents who own the company were born in Greece and they still go back. And they have the, the they had this bugatza that just blew us away. I wish I could still eat bugatza oh, <laughs> because it's all dairy. Oh, right, yeah. right, 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 right. Oh. Yeah, it's so good because it's just a just a cream filled pastry with uh, sugar and cinnamon on top. Yeah. Oh. yeah, that's mainly a dish that's in the northern Greece in uh, Thessaloniki. So where we when we go to it's like the second biggest um, city in Greece. So whenever there's like a convention in that city, everyone's like, "Oh, we're out having drinks, but then we're gonna go find the Bugatta place." It's like, "Great guys, <laughs> I'll, <laughs> I'll catch up with you later." And <laughs> I'll tag along and just watch you guys eat this, you know, freshly baked, freshly out of the oven, smelling so sweet. But I can't have it because <laughs> if I have it, then we're all gonna have trouble. <laughs> yeah, someone's gonna have to hold my hair back. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> so, uh, in 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 past, you know, press releases, interviews, you've mentioned cottage core as an aesthetic in this book. This thing that mm. uh, TikTok people came up with that picked up steam during the pandemic of creating the illusion of returning to a simpler more rural life as a means to disassociate from the world around them, which, I mean, you know, I can't think of a more 2020s vibe than that. Uh, what about this idea attracted you as a, as a story engine? Uh, it's more of a visual engine also, because sure. I, I don't like drawing, uh, I don't like drawing straight lines and I do prefer things to have a more organic look to them. So anything that's cottagey and, you know, broken down, wooden, like, it's it's more appealing to me to draw. So I did want this to be a, uh, what's the word? A fishing, an old fishing village that has just mm -hmm. grown so fast. So there's all these little um, houses all around the place, but there's just also giant buildings like just sticking out it's like kind of like the mix of like this place grew very fast very um too too fast for the people to understand what's happening mm -hmm. like like the bakery especially is a little bit outside of the city so i wanted that place to look like an old house with the tiles and wooden sheds and everything so everything there's like there's a there's a vibe of all these little rural uh, not rural what's the word villagey villagey feel but also a giant industrial city just like grown on top of it and also like i grew up in a in a seaside village basically here in a village town here in greece so a lot of the aesthetic is 
and the way that it's been set out um, set up as a as a town is basically where I grew up in Crete. I, uh, I I was reading about some of the uh, the influences of the whole cottage core thing, and my three favorite uh, were uh, Taylor Taylor Swift's two twenty twenty albums, Folklore and Evermore, uh, Animal Crossing: New Horizons, and three oh, a yeah. whole generation of like millennials and Zoomers just looking at their parents' Thomas Kincaid paintings. Oh my God! Okay. Yeah, which I mean, my mom used to buy all the Thomas Kincaid puzzles and, and mm -hmm. do them, especially after my sister and I had moved out of the house as you know a means to keep herself active. And uh, I, I get it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I I do enjoy the city. Like I I never I grew um, until I was eight. I lived in London, mm -hmm. but it was like outside outside of London. It was like a small town at London. And then when I moved to Greece, I ended up in a small town by the city. So I, it, when I left that and came to Athens, I still have that feeling that I enjoy the city better because I like having all these um, facilities around me. Mm -hmm. But every year that passes, I keep having I have that small feeling like maybe I should go back, <laughs> but I don't want to go back to that small town feeling. I do enjoy the city, but a bit uh, the small town has always been a big part of my my up upbringing. And my father used to be uh, used to be a carpenter, so all of the you know the wood um, building small um, houses and uh, you know all the furniture. It's all cottage place kind of stuff. It's like Greek cottages that has a lot of wooden stuff, like wooden couches, wooden chairs, wooden tables, wooden frames. Everything's wood. So, yeah, a lot of that is a big part of why I chose the cottage core as a aesthetic coziness. How how did this series challenge you compared to previous comics? I mean, the challenge is the writing part. <laughs> like, I have still not got that down. <laughs> um, it's it's a lot trying to do everything at the same time. Uh, like right now I'm drawing I'm in the middle of I'm in the second half of drawing issue 3 but also next week I'm going to have to start um, getting issue 4 prepped so I can start doing layouts of that and I just recently closed on the the lettering for issue 2 so it's that's the big challenge for me because up until now I'm just used to getting my issue drawing it out finishing that get the next issue like once i've finished the last page of the issue i'm done i've locked it sent it and then i go to the next thing but now i'm like juggling so i'm trying to get used to the the juggling aspect of um doing something all by yourself plus also the marketing <laughs> these last couple of months has just been that extra thing on top that i did not foresee the amount of actually talking to people doing interviews uh it, going to cut my comic my local stores and giving them postcards like this is my new book you know give them you know please give these postcards around so we can advertise it it's a, a lot of things that i took for granted like because up until now uh, james used to take care of all this stuff he had the writing and the the marketing and i had all the artwork so he did that and i did the rest so yeah right now it's more of the getting used to the juggling I do like it, but I cannot wait <laughs> to end it <laughs> and take a break. <laughs> just curious, cause you, I mean, you just talked about the marketing, going to your local shops. Mm -hmm. Have you done a, a bunch of cons as well leading up to this? Because we initially connected mm -hmm. at FlameCon. So I'm curious if you've done other shows in this run up or if that was kind of you did that and. You might have, we'll ask you about upcoming things later, but I'm curious about other things you've done in the run-up. Uh, the thing is with the, with FlameCon, it was the first con I was, I was at that we were talk, I was talking about Zawa because the initial press release was supposed to go out the day of the con and it didn't, it came out the week after. So I was like, Hey guys, <laughs> this is my new book. So I was like doing a little, um, 
what's the word? Little guerrilla marketing. Like, hey, people coming here to get wind. So here's your wind signature, and this is my new book. So it was a lot of, you know, talking to people face to face at that that moment. So then the next week came out, and everything started bubbling up, and talking about it more online. Um, but I wish I was at New York. Like New York would have been good this year, but I could not make it happen with the the schedule and also drawing. The only place, the only con I did uh, ever since then was last week. I was at Belgium, and that was just a short, like two day, two day venture. If I was going to go to, if I was going to be in New York again for New York Comic Con, that would have been ten days off my schedule. So I just could not make that happen. So next year. I'll I'll do better marketing next year when we when we're promoting the book, the collection. You hear that other podcast? I booked it first. Yes, <laughs> but uh, on top of yeah, you are the first on the list. <laughs> uh, but on top of the designs that we've talked about when it comes to the city and things, I find the the design for Zawa herself fascinating, in that you have to balance both her being you know endearing and kind of cute with her also being this guardian and with all of the things that have happened to her her being a little bit frightening a little bit not just this sweet little you know Miyazaki other than mm-hmm. princess mononoke uh creature where did uh, how long did it take to get that particular design to where you wanted it to be I think I think I was playing with her design for at least five months while I was doing like this is what this is what I was saying before when we were gonna go back and forth on this. The her first initial design was a ghost. So she had the skull the skull face look with the sunken eyes and the cheeks, and she had big flowy hair that had like bones in it, and she was like a little floaty little person, a little flirt for gay. So the whole original pitch that I was prepping in the beginning was a story about a hungry ghost. And this is where Slimer comes in also as a childhood <laughs> um, inspiration. So as I was developing the story and I started going away from the ghost part and trying to make a, a, an entirely new creature, a new thing, and the story started take, it started becoming more about the industrial capitalism of food and people have don't have control of what they eat or they or they eat anymore that's when i started making her a part of the mountain so she's basically a golem avatar say she's she's more rock than than flesh like she's a part of this mountain she is grown from the mountain and that's when her hair started becoming more flowery and more uh, nature-like because in the beginning of the story, she has uh, these like disgusting white dreads, basically. And as the story progresses and she eats more food and she becomes um, more of herself and she gets more love from, from the people, uh, she starts to grow into her original uh, version. Like if you see in the first couple of pages where I see where we see um the city the mesa's boon um there's a big statue for the guardian and it's basically a huge tree so that's that's what people vision her that's what the people see her as this big part of nature with big rosy cheeks and flowy green hair so all these things these little bits were these little bits from the design started coming in as the more i started to lock in what the story was going to be and then at some point I put in, I, I started drawing her with human clothes because I knew that I didn't want to have her looking as a mon- looking like a monster all the time. And once I drew like the stripy yellow shirt, I was like, okay, this is it. We're done. The stripy yellow shirt has just locked in the whole image of, of who she is. Because I also wanted the stripy, the stripy lines to be like bones, like a ribcage. So... Throughout the comic, you're drawing a lot of splashes, which is great because, you know, obviously it lets everything breathe. It matches the the scope of a story about, you know, mountains mm-hmm. and gods. Uh, how much from a, a, a break from form uh, is this 
for you? You know, are you kind of getting a little bit more experimental for this story? Hmm. I I I can't say too much. There's not hasn't been a lot of experimenting done with this, but I did want to change some of the visual language from Wind because Wind and Zawa have a similar aesthetic, but I didn't want to follow the same. Like with Wind, I have white gutters, and the panels don't have the you know don't have an outline. So I just wanted to stay away from that and have it sort of differently. So adding uh, the lines and then trying to figure out how to make these lines also a part of the the storytelling. Like as you see in the book, I've chosen to change the 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 panel outline panel outline to make it. Um, some of them have the colors to emphasize the emphasize the specific panel. So there's not really much different what I've been doing with wind, but I'm trying to play up, especially with the storytelling and a lot with the lettering. Like I do, I do a lot of playful stuff with the lettering to make the story different than what I normally do. That makes sense. And there's also there's a lot of colors, too many colors <laughs> in this book. Well, that, that's funny because that was the next thing I wanted to ask about. You know, how did you decide on the mm -hmm. palette that you wanted to use? You know, specifically, you've got these greens and pinks and blues that tend to be brighter than everything else going on around it. I don't think there's an answer for that. <laughs> um, <laughs> most, uh, I, I said this uh, a few times that when I read uh, people, you know, what's the word? When I when I see uh, people doing like theses on on uh, artists' work, and they you know they write all these things about oh this is the period when he was feeling like this and these uh, colors were used in this period of his life because this like I, for me that has never been a thing like it's always just me sitting down and letting things flow like when I start coloring a new scene in the book. I don't know what the colors are going to be. I will figure it out as we go because it's just forming on the page for me. But once that first, you know, initial page is uh, established, the scene, then I'm going to have to start, um, you know, making the palette. Like it's very organic. I I, I don't think <laughs> I don't think as much as people think. People uh, think artists work. Um, yeah, I've kind of I've lost my train of thought, but I'm just saying that it's you don't think as much as people think you think. <laughs> yes, that's it. <laughs> that's the worst. Yeah, it, there's a lot of just you know letting things happen, letting things flow, letting things evolve on the page. Like I just sit here with the music, and you know when when the page is formed, has its final form on on the screen, then that's when I know it's done. There's no, yeah. <laughs> There's nothing in this brain. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, head empty, no thoughts. Love it. <laughs> where where did the idea come from for all of the letters and food items uh, appearing in different colors in the the lettering? Since you're lettering everything yourself, mm. it, it was just it, that was just more of a. Um, because the 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 lettering that the, the font that I'm using on for lettering is something that I made myself, I just was trying to figure out how to emphasize certain things. So there were there were a lot more words in the in the first issue that had color, and then my editor was uh, <laughs> raining me back. He's like, "Hey guy, <laughs> like there's too many colors here. You're gonna have to start making choices of." Um, what what words we're gonna emphasize with color? So we ended up just using it for foods. And um, I was speaking on a on a different show two days ago, and they mentioned that every time they read one of the colorful one of the color words, they felt the the flavor. So that was something that i wanted to happen but i didn't realize that it actually worked so when uh, when that person was reading like the word vanilla 
I had like the vanilla color and they they felt it. So they felt so it kind of worked. The the colorful words actually did bring off bring the sense of um, that food in their mind as they're reading it. So we we've mentioned wind here and there a few times. You've worked with with James Tunyon the fourth a lot over the years on on wind, the woods, etc. What is something that you may have learned from him uh, or while working with him that you feel like paid off when it came to making Zawa? Um, James, I love him to death, but he talks a lot in his comics. <laughs> so. Like the woods is eight hundred pages roughly, and wind up until now is around the seven hundred fifty mark. So, in this past decade working with him, I've gotten used to the, you know, drawing characters talking and emoting. That if I hadn't worked with James this past decade, I would never have done. Like all my previous comics were more action heavy than, you know, dialogue heavy. And I didn't realize that he had that, that he's had that, you know, what's the, what's the word? He's had that influence on me. So while I was uh, prepping up the first couple of issues, uh, I'd realized that because I worked with him on so many, you know, dialogue heavy books, I didn't realize that I was actually, that, you know, I am not good at talking today. So, <laughs> yeah, like, it's the, it's um, the time change. <laughs> It's a time change. I was gonna have this <laughs> this talk in the, in an hour. Um, yeah, like he's 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 made me more conscious of having characters speak their mind and be more fleshed out, which is something I didn't I didn't used to do previously. What what was the process for choosing variant cover artists? Did Boom take the lead on that, or did you get to kind of? be precious about who else got to draw your characters. Uh, it was a big, it was a big, very big process. Like uh, we had, we had made, we made like lists with like 20, 30 people on them. And it was um, like, we, we got to a point where I think 80% of the covers are people that I wanted to be on the book. Because I didn't want the the usual suspects that you see with variant covers. I didn't. Mm -hmm. I wanted more other people, like other comic artists that I that I adore and that I know can actually draw this kind of a character. Because, mm -hmm. like it or not, a lot of people in the in the industry in the industry are very horror heavy or very you know, mainstream superhero heavy on their art. So I wanted a different flavor. Like Scotty Young was a big get for the first cover because I knew Scotty would understand the type of character that Zawa is. And Jorge Corona is a big favorite. We've had him since the first uh, issue of Wind. So every time we have a new arc, I always want Jorge back on it because he, like he, he, I kind of feel like Scotty. Like maybe I should, maybe I should write a comic for Jorge to draw. <laughs> He's so good. <laughs> and um, yeah, like most of them are pretty much what I wanted. Like Riley Rosmo was a big get for me because I knew he didn't do much work out of DC. So the moment that I got speaking with Riley and he accepted to do the cover, I was ecstatic because. Yeah, I love his cartoony style and the fact that he's a cartoony artist that does um, a lot of DC work is very rare. Like, basically, and Jorge, both of, both of them are DC artists that get to do cartoony stuff, which is very rare. So what do we need to know about the uh, cat and chicken we'll be seeing throughout this story? They have to, they have a they're supporting characters. They have their story. <laughs> um maybe at some point I might do like a small self-published zine that has a story just for them. Uh, but yeah, they've they've especially the cat. The cat has a very big arc in this story. Not as an arc as a there, she starts off some uh, at one point and changes, but she does play a big story with Zawa. 
a big part of the story was that one. Uh, spot the chicken, uh, not that much. Basically chilling in the bakery and providing eggs for um, <clears throat> for Bandit to make recipes with. But uh, yeah, yeah, I am a big, uh, I'm a cat daddy myself. So uh, yeah, I needed to draw cats. I need, there had to be a cat in there. The chicken just, you know, came into the story. <laughs> the, the cat's good, but we need to, <laughs> we need something uh, to help along with the actual baking. At some point, the chicken reminds the... Bandit to put the lid on the pan <laughs> when he fries yes. the eggs. <laughs> I don't. I think most of the time, I draw, when I draw the spot, the chicken is basically sleeping. He's basically sleeping, but the cat has a big. Um, a big part like whenever the the cat shows up you hear the jingle of the tail and um because she's a guard cat you know she has her role she's going to be protective she's going to try and help people out she's a little superhero of her, of her own so uh, you said earlier that you're you and james are in the middle of a one-year break from wind what mm -hmm. precipitated the taking a, a break from that book uh well james is a very busy person as you may have uh, seen <laughs> he has a few books out there and i think and i kind of realize this now i think three years is the breaking point from drawing uh, the same thing like when we were doing the woods it was basically four years of my life but while i was drawing the woods i was also drawing for I was also I was also drawing um turtles, so I got to have those breaks. To I got to like break off and draw something different while I was you know in between the woods because we used to do like four issues and then take a month break. So in those extra months, I would like balance it out and juggle and do other things. But with winds, I didn't have that because it's such a big book and I'm also coloring at the same time. So 250 pages of wind per year is was a lot. And when we got to the the third year, I was trying to, I was, you know, get a little bit tired of um, drawing the same characters. So it was a, it's, a, it's a good, happy, it was a happy, you know, situation where we're like, okay, take a break, do something else, you know, get those, um, those creative juices into something else. And then come back to finish off um, the last two books of Wind. And there was also, you know, James needed to to also take a break from uh, doing a young adult book at the same time when he's doing everything else's horror. Yeah. How has your working relationship with James grown over the course of, you know, four years of The Woods and three years of Wind? Again, like, I've known him since he was 26 and oh. I was 29 so we were basically kids when we started <laughs> drawing yeah. these uh, these things like he was just an upcoming uh, creator doing backup stories for Batman and I was uh, just a guy who did one book at Dark Horse so we started these when we started off we were just like you know new at this and trying to make a, a big book so we've just been friends. It's more we're just friends doing comics basically for the past decade. Uh, how much detail does James put in his scripts when it comes to the the fairies, the vampires, the the creatures of the world of wind? Are there specifics, or is as at this point it's like he knows what you do? Go to town on creating these things. Mm. Uh, yeah. He, I have total control of everything. He, the only person, the only character he gave me uh, bigger notes for was Wind. Like he wanted Wind to be a pale little boy um, with sunken eyes, and you know that was it. That was the the, the notes because that, that was the first thing that we talked about. Everything else has just been, you know, I want a cool vampire. I want to call this. I want this character. Like the moment when I. Most of the time, whenever I see what the character's arc is going to be or what they're doing in the story, that's where I, I visualize how they're going to be. Like, it's more of a, 
he gives me the their actions and I'll figure out who looks better, what what the character needs to look like for these specific actions. And I you know, I have a bad a bad um, habit of uh, evolving characters as they go. Like <clears throat> every every book wind looks different and every every character has a different look to them. And especially with Zawa in the in the span of five issues, she was she's gonna be she's gonna look different in every issue. <laughs> it's kinda <laughs> weird. Um I can't I can never like I can never draw the iconic hero version of a character because I they always evolve to meet the story. Like even the uh, Zawa on the first cover is not the Zawa you'll be seeing in the book. It's just a it's a cool image of what she is going to be generally, but we never see that version of her in the story. That makes sense. Doesn't, because you haven't read the issue too. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the moment when she actually gets the human clothes, her hair isn't like this. Her hair is more green. It's more flowery. But that was the 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 image that we wanted on the first cover because giving her more nature in her hair would be something that doesn't show up in the first issue and it happens a lot with uh, with everything like every time i draw wind on a cover but it ends up not being the wind that we 100 percent see in the book that happened a lot in the, in the second was it the second book yeah the second book of wind wind on the cover never looks like that in the book because he never gets the the outfit that was drawn on the cover. He gets it at the end of the book, which goes into the third book. Mm. Yeah. And then those are the kind of things that, you know, are weird with, because um, like with James, he gave me notes like, at some point in the second book, you know, Wind is going to, you know, we're just going to have to have him wearing some sort of makeshift uh, clothes before he gets to the fairy town. And at the fairy town, he'll get specific clothes that would, uh, fit around his wings and as the, the book progressed I kept seeing that point never coming <laughs> so he started off with a, a shirt that was barely fitting him and I was like 200 pages in like James you know, we, we still have to get him those clothes <laughs> so he actually gets the clothes on the last two pages of the book kind of like Which when you is, start uh... playing Breath of the Wild you know, and Link is just like wearing a loincloth and I'm just like, wait, wait, because I'm old and don't have patience for video games anymore. I'm like, when does he get the goddamn green tunic? <laughs> yes, we'll never get that green tunic. <laughs> but yeah, like, especially with that, that was that was a that was a big one because I like I did this whole design for the clothes and then 10 months in, still like waiting for him to put these clothes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. But yeah, so, like we, we've split up our we split up our duties. Like he does the story, he gives me the notes, and I just have free reign on the artwork and the world building. You got to work on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, for a while over at IDW, uh, as we established a cartoon you grew up loving as a kid. Uh, as someone who's worked largely in the creator owned and the original content spaces, how was that? experience you know could you feel kevin eastman looking over your shoulder whispering sweet cowabungas of encouragement in your ear um not really it was more of a, um it's a weird situation because it took me a while to figure out how to play in other people's world worlds because when i started drawing turtles i tried to fit the artwork that was pre Previously, previously in the book, like I was looking to Matteo Santaluco, I was looking to Sophie Campbell, and I was trying to make my turtles fit in that world. And only like four years in, uh, after drawing like how many issues, I realized that hey, maybe I just draw the turtles the way I want to draw them. <laughs> and because I kept seeing like every other artist that came in on the series was just doing whatever they wanted. There was like, there was no continuity visually for, uh, for that series. Not, not the way that you'd see in other, other books. Like if you read a Batman book from the main series, Batman, Batman has a specific outfit. 
that doesn't happen with turtles. Turtles, every artist does their own turtles, which is kind of weird. But I was, I always tried to play in with the specific guidelines that were never given to me. But I just thought that I assumed that this was the way to do it. So at some point, I was like, no, no, I just have to do my own suits. I'm going to do my own colorful versions of them, which they played out for a good five issues. I got to do those. So I was happy. Like those, that was the, the time where I, I, I clicked. Like just do whatever you want. So I, I, I prefer doing creator own now because I do have uh, free, you know, control. But uh, if I ever go back to Turtles, I would love to do just something 100% my own. I could do something with a writer, but I want it to be visually 100% my own and not follow the rules that have already been established. What what artists do you jam on personally? Like, who, are, who are your uh, artists? Ooh, hmm. Hmm. Let me just take a look around. Oh, well, I'm a big fan of Otomo. Always have been. And I, I've been trying to collect most of uh, all of his new books, no, new books, all of the new editions of his previous, uh, previous books that he did before Akira. And I do have a very big special part in my heart for Guy Davis. He did the BPRD. Sadly, he doesn't do comics anymore, but I love everything that he did before stopping. Um, if you haven't read, he did a Batman story that was never collected into a volume. I know the one. The never, you know, Nevermore. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. It's like everyone talks about, you know, Gotham by Gaslight. And they always talk about, you know, the Russell story and the Minola, the Minola story. But there's a whole other series, which is like four or five issues, which is 100% Guy Davis drawing Batman and Edgar Allan Poe that never got collected. And it saddens me. I mean, on top of that, the covers on that book were Bernie Wrightson. Yeah, Bernie Wrightson covers yeah. with Guy Davis art. Oh, I love that book. Yeah, I, I I think he got kind of shortchanged. That's why he probably left the uh, comics and you know just started doing concept art for Guillermo del Toro. Yeah. But everything that he did, I love. Like I'm a huge fan. I, I he's he's a big part of how I um, stopped giving a damn about drawing real stuff because when I was a kid in art school, I actually reached out to guy with a few questions like you know, I'm a big fan and um, he he I, I asked him about how I, I sorry I was fascinated about how he drew his backgrounds and especially in something like the marquee and BPRD you would see these buildings and these frames with like paintings and everything and they're just scribbly lines like it was just a, a weird scribbly line just there was no like hundred percent. I'm drawing this building to be perfect. Everything was just scribbly. And he just said to me, like, you know, once you've done your establishing, establishing shot, you, you know, we don't need to draw everything perfectly. And that stuck with me. So every time I draw like a background, I'm I just keep going back to like, don't care, just scribble a line here, scribble a line here. The the reader understands it's just an element in the background. You can see the shape of the building. You can see the shape of the the whatever that was established a couple of pounds before. So he's kind of stuck with me on that. Just the, you know, getting the idea across and not, you know, not killing yourself to make it 100% perfect. Any upcoming uh, signings, appearances as we get closer to the release of the first issue? Sadly, no. <laughs> I have not seen anyone. <laughs> um, the book is out in 10 days, I think. Just about the, issue, the first issue is out in ten days. Yeah, uh, the only signing I will do will be at my local store, which will probably be like some point late November or December because uh, issues uh, take a while to get here. Get here in Greece; they don't come out on the day; they come out like weeks later. So I'll do like a little signing at my at my local store, and uh, the next convention I will probably show up would be once I'm done. Like I need to focus 
on finishing the book. I aim to finish by the end of the year, but it'll probably take me until the end of January, the way things are going. You know, the writing and the lettering and the, <laughs> the extra, extra week that every issue needs just for me to write it. So yes, I'm not going anywhere until I finish this book. But be in this office. <laughs> what are you what are you reading right now? Again, again very hard question. <laughs> I buy a lot of comics. I haven't had any time to read anything. Uh I was just saying the other day that I bought all eleven issues up until now of Kaya, but I have never read any of them yet. They're just piling up <laughs> a little little pack. Um I tried reading the first, uh, was it? The first book of Before Chainsaw Man. Mm. I tried reading that on the plane one day, but didn't get far because I was tired. So I just fell asleep. <laughs> um, what else have I got here? I Oh, I have been rereading this. PTSD by <laughs> Guillaume. Singlin, which is a very cool book and it's I mean if you haven't read this I mean just look at the art on this book it's amazing gorgeous so I'm just flicking through that again I read it before but I'm just taking notes and one of the recent books that I got that I plan to start at some point whenever I get a break is Kitaro Japan's <laughs> it's about a yokai, I think. Folklore, strange creatures. And it's like a kind of a best of. Yeah, he's a 350-year-old yokai. So it's got magical crap and a lot of Japanese folklore and vampires and monsters. But I'm not hundred percent sure what this book is because I think this is like a best of because the series is kind of huge. So this is like, a, you know, trying to get to know the character. And if you want to dive in and start reading the whole series, it's going to be like 50 volumes, knowing the Japanese people. <laughs> well, Michael, this has been a fantastic time. Final question as we release you back into the world. How can people mm -hmm. follow you online and keep up with Zawa and everything else that you got going on? Uh, online, you can find me at uh, Instagram mainly because that's the only platform that's <laughs> kind of left. Um, at uh, the Wooden King, that's my handle there. I try to do my best and upload stuff, but I'm the worst at social media, especially when I'm working. Like I, I put all my energy the last two months to do posts, but now that I'm, <laughs> now that we're done with the promotion of the first issue, I'm just gonna <laughs> hide back into. <laughs> You know, my desk here and uh i'll try my best to update people and see how things are going like the thing is when you're drawing a comic you don't get to draw other stuff so there's not really much i can share and all the cool things that i want to share from the book i'm drawing are spoilers <laughs> so it's kind of like what do i share how do i you know what do i show here because you know, if I draw just a character, you know, it's just a character. But the cool stuff are, you know, plot points that I don't want people seeing until, you know, the issue is out. So I'll try my best. No promises. But if you follow me there, it'll be nice. Fair enough. Well, Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show. No, thank you so much. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, where you can find this podcast along with our sister podcasts, Battle of the Atom and Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast co-hosted by Matt Lazowitz and Will Nevin. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash ComicsXF, where a dollar donation gets you a shout-out at the end of every episode. A $2 donation gets you early access to WMQ&A and a shout-out at the end of every episode. A $3 donation gets you a sticker, 
early access, and a shout out. A $5 donation gets you access to our monthly bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a deep dive into the comic appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom. A $25 donation lets you request a primer, one of our custom reading guides for a series, character, or creator at ComicsXF, and a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Lisa Slack, Will Redman, Tobias Carroll, Natalie Jordan, Mike Sagawa, Will Nevin, Liz Large, Asimov Fangirl, Carla Pacheco, and Robert Secundus. You're all special, and we love you. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at WMQ Comics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. You can also follow ComicsXF on Facebook, Instagram, and Blue Sky. And until next week, remember, Rob Liefeld's greatest contribution to comics isn't Deadpool or Youngblood or even Major X. It's his impression of Todd McFarlane. W-N-Q-A.